Uh, we're in John 9 this week, John chapter 9. The title is, I Saw the Light. I Saw the Light. As you're turning there, let me remind you over the last few weeks of where we have been. I think the context matters for this story. We've been looking at some of the events that took place at this festival that was taking place in Jerusalem at this time called the Feast of Tabernacles. It started in chapter 7 with Jesus' younger brothers egging him on to use this festival as an opportunity to present himself as the Messiah. But as we learned, their intentions were not in his best interest. Jesus did eventually go to the festival, and when he did, he discovered that there was mixed feelings about him. Some thought he was good, others thought he was a troublemaker. Some believed in him while others were saying he had a demon. So they were close to uh, their observations of Jesus. No, they were way out here. And as these rumors were circulating, Jesus taught in the temple. And on one occasion, he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On another occasion, Jesus shouted to all who were in an earshot of his voice, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These themes of water and light were central to the celebration at this festival. It reminded God's people then of a time when God guided his people out of slavery in Egypt with this light that was by fire, and when he provided for his people water from a rock. But what John wants us to see through Jesus' proclamation about himself to be the living waters and, and the light of the world, that he himself is the fulfillment of all that God planned and purposed in his people. And I bring this up because the story we're about to read is actually kind of the climax of everything that has happened at this festival. This story told by John is meant to prove without a shadow of doubt that Jesus is who he said he was, the living water and the light of the world. And anyone who doesn't believe that, it is not because of a lack of evidence, but because they are willingly blinding themselves to the truth of God's word and works. This story is about a man who had his life changed by Jesus. It's a story of grace. It's filled with tragedy and irony, as all good stories are. But whenever I'm hearing a story, I always, I, I get impatient and I always think, get to the point. <laughs> what is the point of the story? The point is this, only Jesus can open a person's eyes to see and believe in him. Only Jesus can open a person's eyes to see and believe in him. We're going to see that in our story. We're going to read the whole story from the start. It's such a good story. It needs to be read in one reading. So let's jump in, follow along. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll get into it. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but How he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened, his, uh, opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, 
And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Many of you are familiar with the lyrics of the song that is the title, I Saw the Light. I was surprised to know it was uh, written by Hank Williams. That's kind of weird. Anyway, but the f- I'm just going to read the first two verses of the song. It says, I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night, praise the Lord, I saw the light. Just like a blind man, I wandered along, worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then like the blind man that God gave back his sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. And then the chorus comes in, I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. We love that song because such is the testimony of every converted Christian who has come to believe in Jesus. No matter the details or the circumstances of what it was that brought you to faith in Christ, the transaction is the same. You were once living in darkness, but are now a child of light by His grace and grace alone. Now, for most of us here in this room, that is a truth you are ready to accept celebrate, and even sing about. However, for others, that statement, living in darkness, can be quite offensive. As an example, go and tell the leading atheist today that what they believe is they're they're living in darkness, and just see how they respond. Because to their understanding... To their self-assertion, they're the enlightened ones. And us religious people, we're those still living in the archaic dark days of believing in something beyond us. Go and tell that to the Buddhist, to the Muslim, to the Hindu, to the New Age philosopher, the secular humanist, that they are living in darkness and they will completely disagree with you. Go tell that to the billionaire investor who has everything this world and this life has to offer, the celebrity actor or the politician, all of those people who do not believe in Jesus, and see if they agree with you that they are living a life of darkness and blindness and that they need to come to the light. My point is this, not everyone's perception of their own spiritual darkness, their spiritual blindness is as obvious to them as this man's blindness was to him and to everyone else. And nothing you can say to people, no manipulation, nothing can restore that sight other than Jesus. He's the only one that can open people's eyes to see. Now, there are some people who, like this man, are very aware of their darkened spiritual condition. But even those people aren't able to discover the truth 
about Jesus on their own. They can't discover the light on their own. Christ needs to shine that light into their eyes if they are going to see and believe in Him. But here's the good news for us. Jesus can open eyes. Jesus does open eyes. Jesus wants to open eyes. Our problem is we don't pray enough that He'll open eyes. We don't celebrate and worship enough that He has opened eyes. But when He does, life is never the same again. It wasn't for this man, and it shouldn't be for us. That's what our story is about, Jesus opening the eyes of the spiritually blind and how only He can do that. Now, let's just look at the story a little closer and see how John says that, how he argues that. We're going to look at four sections of the story, starting with the setting. I'm not going to read all these verses again because it was a lot. We're just going to scan over it. Look over with me, verses 1 through 5. The story opens with Jesus walking through Jerusalem. The previous chapter ended with Jesus escaping with his life as they were about to stone him to death because he was claiming to be God. In verse 14 of this chapter, John informs us that Jesus did this sign once again, just as he did back in chapter 5, on the Sabbath day. And my thought is, can't Jesus just do it on a different day of the week? There's six other days. But he did it intentionally. He did it to incite frustration and anger and hostility in the religious leaders. Why? Because he did it good for somebody, just like he did for the lame man in chapter 5, and now he heals the man's sight here, and they hate him for doing a good thing. But what we cannot fail to see is that this story is not merely about one man gaining his sight, as amazing as that is. It says in verse 16, this was a sign. A sign points to something else, a deeper spiritual truth about our need, everyone's need to have their eyes opened by Jesus to see and believe in Him. But the story starts with an odd theological question. Did you notice that? A question I think many people have wondered in different ways at different times. And I'll rephrase the question for the sake of clarity. Essentially, what they are asking Jesus about is generational curses. Is this guy this way because of something he did even before he was born or what his parents did? They believed that God caused this man to be born blind, but for justified reasons. I mean, God's not the problem here, but he caused this in a just way because either of sin from this man or from his parents. And they were just wondering who's to blame. But what Jesus does right away is he corrects, corrects them that they're really just asking the wrong question because it's based on a wrong premise. God didn't cause this man to be born in this condition. In the same way, we can affirm God does not cause people to be born into sin that was our doing. God doesn't cause people to be born murderers. God doesn't cause people to be born with same-sex attraction. He doesn't cause people to be born into poverty or with other physical or mental handicaps or conditions. There is no generational curses, and God is not the cause of people's fallen condition. Even if you think that He's justified to do all of that, it's a wrong premise. Instead, what Jesus does is he turns the question around. 
that this man was born so that the works of God may be displayed in him. In other words, every person, no matter their current spiritual condition or physical condition, are made by God and for God in the image of God to display the glory of God. And when we come to Christ, when we come to faith in Him, even more so do we get the opportunity to do that. And until I think we see people in that way, including ourselves, we will never treat people or love people in the way that they should be. So he clarifies the question. And he goes on and identifies the specific work that God wants to do in this man by talking about this, I am the light of the world, and while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to prove who I am by reflecting my light in this man, by restoring his blindness. I'm going to prove that what I'm saying is true by what I'm going to do through this man. And friends, that's what God does whenever he opens people's eyes. The reason why God saved you, the reason why he called you into a relationship with him is so that he can bring glory to himself by showing grace to you. When other people see your life, they should go, whoa, it's the Matthew 5, 16 model. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and not give glory to you, but give glory to your father who is in heaven. That's what he's talking about here. So that's the setting of the story. The next thing we see then is the miracle itself. In verses 6 and 7. And notice, John only uses two verses to explain the miracle. This incredible thing that changed this man's life. He just uses two verses. But what's interesting about this healing is not simply that he healed a man's sight, but how he did it. At first glance, it's rather odd. He spits in the dirt, makes mud and anoints the man's eyes with the mud and then tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he does, he comes back seeing. Again, how Jesus chose to heal this man is quite strange, but it has purpose. It also may be helpful to know that there was a lot of superstitious medicinal practices going on at this time, of which I am sure this man and his family tried many times to try and heal his blindness. Uh, but people still do this thing today. Uh, growing up, my grandma, she felt like tiger balm would heal anything. So she always had little things, little vials of tiger balm all over her house. And if you had like your eye hurt, she'd rub tiger balm in your eye. Or if you had a sore throat, she'd rub it on your tongue. You know, tiger balm, seriously. It's like my big fat Greek wedding. You know, Windex will fix everything. <laughs> we do the same. We, people still do strange things. Um, but only Jesus, only Jesus was able to heal him. And he did it with very strange means. But this too was a sign. A sign that the means by which he healed the man pointed back to creation when God formed man from the dust and breathed life into him. Jesus then recreates this man's sight with the dust of the earth. And let's not overlook that this man actually had to like do what Jesus said. He obeyed even before he believed. He believes at the end of the story. He obeyed before he believed anything about Jesus, and he did exactly what he told him to do. And friends, that's often how faith starts. It starts by 
being willing to put God's Word to the test, to obey it even when it doesn't make sense at first. If you're raising kids, um, even before they believe in Jesus, we need to teach them first to obey. And our hope is that as they obey, as they take God's Word and apply it to their lives, they actually see how what God's Word says makes sense, and they come to believe in the truth as this man eventually did. But that's how John describes the miracle, this sign that happened to him, how his sight was restored. What's odd, though, is that's not where the story ends. It would be great if that's just where the story ended. Great, this, man, this guy healed him, and he could see again, but that's not where it ends. In fact, that's just the beginning of the whole story because the whole story is about the fallout of this miracle. The rising action is really where John wants us to think about. It's a section I'm calling the interrogations. Look over with me verses 8 to 34. You would think after a miracle like this, everyone would immediately like fall down, confess Christ as Lord, the glory of God the Father, He's the Messiah, overdone, sealed, this is what it is, but they don't. You would also think that they would at the very least celebrate with this man that you've received your sight, but they don't do that either. Instead, everyone was either afraid, they were skeptical, or they were angry. And the reason why was simply based upon the one who healed him, Jesus. And what John wants us to notice in the way he retells this story is that many of these people that we're scanning over, that we already read about, didn't want to admit the obvious. They didn't want to accept the truth. They didn't want to see the light. They were willingly blinding themselves, though the light was all around them. Now, there are reasons why, but they were kind of lame reasons why. The first interrogators, John mentions, are the neighbors of the man. People who knew him, who saw him every single day, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Some even wondered if this was the same guy or was he like the doppelganger of this guy. And he tells them, no, it, it is me. And then they ask him, how? How this happened? They've tried everything to help this guy. And he gives them the facts. Uh, this guy, Jesus, you've heard about him? Made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go and wash in the pool. I did, and now I see. But is that really what they were wondering? After all, they, they knew how it happened. Some of them probably even saw it happen. The bigger question is, but how did that <laughs> How did that cure your blindness? If that was the question, then this man would have to say, I have no idea. Last time I checked, mud and spit and washing and water doesn't cure someone's eyes. It must have been something about this guy who did it. So they do what seemed obvious at the time. They bring him to the religious leaders to be properly interrogated. What's interesting, though, is that when he gets there, these guys are unwilling to admit certain pieces of evidence into the facts of the case. They will not accept that this man, Jesus, is anything but a criminal because he did this on the Sabbath just as he did before. And they ask him what happened, and he repeats himself. This guy, Jesus, came, made mud, put it on my eyes, I went and washed, now I see. 
The guy's testimony is the same as before, and and John is intentional in saying that because whenever you give testimony, they're going to try and see, are there holes in this person's story? Because if there's holes, then he's lying and he's not telling the truth. But, But every time, he says the same story. And so then they're like, you don't, we don't, we still don't believe you. And they bring the guy's parents over and they confirm with great fear, yeah, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind, but did you notice they're unwilling to go any further with their son's testimony of what happened? They say, how it happened and who did it, we don't know. Liars. They were afraid, though. John tells us right there why they said this. They were afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. To be excommunicated would have had massive religious and socioeconomic ramifications, and they weren't willing to risk that, even if it meant denying the truth of what they knew, even denying their own son who had just received his sight. So they bring the guy back again for a second round of interrogation because the parents point out, "Uh, dude, listen, he's old enough to talk for himself. We're out of this. We don't want anything to do with this anymore. And this is where things get funny. Look at verse 24 again. We'll read this. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This guy is awesome. But two two quick observations from this interaction Number one, this interaction challenges us and should challenge every reader of this story on our understanding of what it means to know anything, to know something. How do we know what we know? This is actually like a philosophical discussion. Uh, The fancy word for that is epistemology. It's the theory of knowledge. How do you know what you know? And the leaders claimed to know that Jesus was a sinner. But how did they know that? It's not as if there was uniformity on this. There wasn't even consensus about this. How did you guys know that these guys convinced themselves that what they knew about Jesus was right knowledge, even though we can clearly see it wasn't true? Which is what made the man's response to their second interaction so good. He says, listen, what you guys are saying about this guy, I'm not convinced of. I don't know. I, have, I don't have enough information to make that conclusion. I don't know. But you know what? Let me tell you one thing I do know. I was once blind, and now I see. And it's a passive way of saying, and you guys know that once I was blind, and now I see. And Jesus has everything to do with it. Sometimes when I talk to people about faith, I am always surprised by the things people claim to know about God or about the Bible or about church history, what surprises me is two things, how confident they are in their opinions and how shallow the evidence is for those opinions. They claim to know a lot based on very, very little. 
I'm throwing my older brother under the bus, but a few years ago, my brother was at my house, and uh, this is not my brother who comes and plays worship sometimes here, but he, we were having a discussion about the origins of the Bible, and he just rants for like 10 minutes about like the corrupt political nature of the origins of the Bible and blah, 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 and this guy brought it together, and I'm just letting him run, letting him run, and I just, he gets to the end, and I go, none of what you said is true. And it, I mean... I think that he could sense that I was unmoved by what he was saying, and I was like, actually, this and this and this is what is true. And the conversation kind of ended. Two weeks later, he texts me and says, hey, I looked it up, and, and you were right. Like, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, this didn't happen. But I was shocked. This is my older brother, and he's so smart, and he knew all of these things, and he was so passionate about it, and in a second, he was like, wait, how do I know that? And he went and did some more research. I'm shocked by the confidence that people have in their opinions, and yet they have no idea what they're talking about half the time. I don't know why some, but at the same time, Christians can make a similar error, different but similar, of claiming to have an explanation for everything. Don't we do this? When, when we should be humble like this man and honest enough to say, as this guy did, you know what, I don't know the answer to that question. We don't have to have the answer to everything. So many things are a mystery to us. But I can tell you what I know for sure. We should be willing to and bold enough to say that. I, I can tell you this, once I was blind, now I see. I don't know why some people believe in Jesus and others don't. I mean, I have my opinions. Um, but what I do know is this, only Jesus can open a person's eyes to see and believe in him. I know that. Again, I don't know how he does it. I don't quite understand the mystery of salvation, the mystery of regeneration, the mystery of conversion, but what I do know is that none of it is possible apart from God's grace alone. This man knew one thing, and that one thing is what he stood on. In a world of confusion, and as you're growing in your knowledge of God and the way he works in the world, you know, we can get very uh, bogged down by the things that we don't know when what we should do is plant our feet firmly on the things that we do know. I know this one thing, as you guys are pressuring me, that once I was blind and now I see. You know, these guys, there's a lot of buzzwords today. One of them is narcissism and gaslighting. That's essentially what these guys were doing. They were gaslighting this guy. They're like, hey, this Bible right here, this Bible is blue. Say it's blue. And he's like, dude, that's a brown Bible. That is a brown Bible. Say he's a sinner. And he's like, dude, I, no. I'm not going to be moved by your gaslighting. But so many people are given to the pressure of that, especially when it's a group of people. But he doesn't do that because he stands on the one thing he knows to be true. I was once blind. Now I see. In fact, he flips it and turns it on these guys. He goes, why do you keep asking me this? Do you also want to become his disciples? And he said, no person in history, not a single story in the Old Testament includes a time when someone had their sight restored. And yet this man, Jesus, did that for me. And you guys know it. And his conclusion was this. He moved from he's just a prophet. Man, he must be God. God must be with him. Of course, they don't like his sarcasm, so uh, they kick him out. They excommunicate him. 
which leads to the resolution of the story, what I'm calling the confession in verses 35 to 41. It's the last paragraph. We see that Jesus, after he was kicked out, he finds the man that he had healed, and he asks him a really important question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? This was a messianic title from the Old Testament book of Daniel that basically referred to the Messiah. And the man responds, who is he? To which Jesus replies, the one that you see, I am he. And upon hearing these words, the man makes his saving confession. Very simple words. Before I read it, I can't help but think that before he said these very simple words, his life flashed before his eyes. And, and he thought to himself, if I say what I'm about to say, my community is going to reject me. The religious leaders, they've already excommunicated me. My parents may abandon me like totally. Uh, I may not be able to get a job. I mean, he, his life flashed before his eyes with this question. And yet, with his life flashing before his eyes, the man cannot deny the truth of what he's come to believe. And he says, Lord, I do believe. And John tells us that he worshiped him. Now, I have no idea uh, what that looked like, uh, but the one thing that is clear is Jesus received worship. All of this talk about him being God, we know that God alone is worthy of our worship, and here he worships and Jesus receives his worship, proving once again that he is God. And this is our only response to him. How do we respond to when Christ opens our eyes to see and believe in him? We respond in this way. We worship, we praise, we celebrate, we give honor and glory to him. But John ends this story with an ironic twist. It's Jesus essentially explaining the miracle. And he says, I've come into the world as a judgment to bring light to those who are, in, who are blind and to expose the blindness of those who think they're already enlightened. The question is, how will you respond to the light that has come into the world? There's a famous story, and I'll end with this, a scene in the life of Martin Luther. He was the great reformer from 500 years ago. Um, as many of you know, Luther was heavily opposed in his day because he challenged the establishment of the medieval Catholic Church, specifically their heretical teachings and practices. And the reason he opposed their teachings and their practices wasn't because Luther just liked being a pill. It was because he personally had his eyes opened by the gospel of justification by faith and grace alone in Christ alone. And he couldn't stand to see that the church was continuing to keep people in darkness by not preaching the gospel of justification by grace and faith alone in Christ alone. And so he sought reformations. He preached and he wrote books and he did all of these things in order to bring reform, in order that people might be brought into the light. And, but all this came to a head at this meeting called the Diet of Worms. Luther thought he was coming to have a conversation. He thought maybe he was taking ground. Instead, he came and received an ultimatum, uh, recant or die, recant or be excommunicated. 
And like the man in the story, Luther understood the spiritual risk if he continued to defy the religious establishment to be cut off from the church in his day meant you were literally cut off from Christ. You did not have salvation. You were going to hell. And so he asked for a few days to think about it. Naturally, he understood the ramifications of the next words that were going to come out of his mouth. But he did come back. I think it was three days later. And he had a very articulated response. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just the end. Listen to his response. Since your most serene majesty and your highnesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give you one. And it is this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. That's a fancy way of saying you're hypocrites. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Friends, those are the words of a person whose eyes have been opened by Christ. This story in John 9 is both tragic and terrific, ironic and inspiring. But the point of the story is quite simple. Only Jesus can open a person's eyes to see and believe in Him. Now, there's related truths to that as we've discovered, that once a person comes to light, it's kind of hard to go back into the darkness as they're holding on to this one thing that they know. And it's also true that once you come into the light, you will be challenged by the world and even religious people on what you know to be now true. People will reject you. Even your closest friends and family may not embrace the truth that you have come to know. But the good news is this, that God desires to open people's eyes. God desires to open people's hearts God desires to give people new life. He can, He does, and He wants to. The question is, are we going to celebrate? Are we going to worship Him when He does? And are we going to pray even harder that He continues to bring the people that we know into a saving relationship with Him? He's done it before. He can still do it again. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and we do, like this man, worship you in this moment because of what you have done for us. You didn't just, for this man you restored his eyes, but you gave him the greater thing, eyes to see and believe that Jesus is Lord. You gave him life, eternal, salvation, and God, we have received, this, received that same sight. And Lord, we are so joyful, so grateful and thankful that you would consider us, that you would see us when no one else did, and that you would bring us into a relationship with you through your son. We are so grateful for that. God, help us to be confident in your ability and your willingness and desire to continue to open people's eyes. We pray 
as we think about the people that we know and love, maybe even the sum of the people we don't, (laughs) that God, you would bring salvation to their life by opening their eyes to see and believe in Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.